Well, hello everyone. We are back for part two of the recording from our live episode we did this past week. If you have not listened to part one, it's going to be a little bit important for context. So I'm going to encourage you to stop listening right now and go back to episode 16 because that's going to be very important for context. These two episodes flow right into each other as part of the same conversation. So that's going to be very important. Uh, But before we get into the episode, I want to just say again, thank you to our panelists who did this and they were amazing. Meredith, Bridget, Darren, Sarah, you all are wonderful. And so don't worry, I am not going to hold this up any longer. We are going to go right into the episode. Let's ask a, let me ask a question that we got from, from an, from our audience. Um, how would you explain white privilege to a white person who doesn't see it? And what advice do you have for a white person who is facing their own privilege and facing their own privilege? So quickly, how I would, um, how I would uh, explain that is White privilege doesn't mean that uh, you didn't work hard for where you're at. It just means that it is not an obstacle for you to overcome. And that the foundations of this uh, country was built to help you to propel forward and and to hold others back. Um, I guess um, Bridget, Darren, or Sarah, do you have anything more to add to that? I think um, one of my favorites is like white privilege does not mean that you have not experienced hardship in your life. It just means that your race was not one of those hardships. And I I always like to remind people whenever we talk about privilege, um, simply that we all have some form of privilege. Uh, It's not an either or, it's not a binary. Um, yes, you might experience privilege in one way while still having other forms of disadvantage. So yes, you can be poor and still have white privilege. Or yes, you can be, um, you can be a woman and still enjoy other forms of privilege. Um, and that, you know, I, I look at myself all the time. I'm, I'm an educated person who's also poor, who's also black, who's also gay, but who's also male and masculine presenting, who, who uh, speaks in a way that, that pretty much gets me um, access to a lot of things. Um, like there's, there's, they're, they are both and, they're true. That's why uh, um, um, Kimberly, um, uh, oh gosh, I can't think of her name right now. It's blanking, but, uh, but, uh, but the, Are the you making a Kimberly Crenshaw reference? Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, it's, it's been a very long week, right? <laughs> and it's only our Thursday. But um, when, when Kimberly Crenshaw makes this, this case for intersectionality, some people resist it because they think it's supposed to tell them something. 
but uh, intersectionality is a window through which we see things. It's, it's a frame that helps us to understand what is. It doesn't tell us what is, it just helps us look at it within a certain context. Um, and I think that's the way um, we have to engage privilege to realize that we have context, we have things that we notice and things that we don't. And if we are going to have a, a healthy or healthful conversation, it needs to include more than just these singular things that we often use to measure. Awesome. Sarah? Yeah, and to this, the second part of the question about how to engage the conversations with people who may not be familiar with it may protest it. Um, Ali Henney has a really great Twitter thread about white fragility and like it gives very, I think they're like 18 questions of that people can reflect on, on the, for themselves. And I think that's really helpful when you have kind of some more objective measures of um, what white privilege looks like. And then I think too, something that I've been thinking about and conversing with people about is just the heart posture when you're going into those conversations with people. And are you coming at this conversation from a place of trying to make yourself feel less guilty or make yourself look good or like so that the people around you know that you're not racist? Or are you genuinely engaging because you love and care about this person? And I find often that those, the, the conversations around that are a lot easier when it's from that place of love and care and deep relationship. And I'll just like piggyback on both Darren and Sarah. Um, I think like there can be sometimes a fear when talking about privilege that like in acknowledging your privilege, all of the like difficult things that you've had to overcome in your life get erased. Um, and that's not what it's about at all because all of us have privilege. Um, it's just a reality unless you are the most intersectional of intersectional people that has ever walked the face of the earth. All of us have some form of privilege that we all have to grapple with and acknowledge um, in order to uh, um, move forward in addressing inequities that exist. Um, and I think there can sometimes be this aspect, and it's, I think, sometimes made fun of by, um, within conservative circles, it's called the oppression Olympics, where it's like this feeling where we've got to like out oppress the other person. Um, and everybody has got to have, you know, an identity that's oppressed and like who's more oppressed than the other. And like, that's not what this conversation is about. Um, there is, and I think like Darren, you mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw. I think it was Crenshaw, but like, I'm not sure. So now here I am blanking, but she was the one who said there right. is, <laughs> there is no hierarchy of oppression. Um, like, this is not about comparing each other's oppressions and, like, putting, like, the most oppressed at the top of some oppression totem pole. Like, that's not what this is about. This is about um, moving forward and taking steps towards building an equitable society um, and acknowledging the things that exist that create inequities, that, that create hardships for people um, that are not just. Um, and if we all commit to examining um, how those things operate, um, not only to oppress us, but also to privilege us, then we can have a better understanding of how this all relates within our world and then be able to know 
how to take steps to address those things. Yeah. And, and it just makes me think part of, part of how we do address this is moving past the idea that we're either good or bad. Um, the reality is we are both good and bad all the time. And if we can own that, if we can hold that tension, then we can see that, yes, I can, I can, I can have things that benefit me and things that are disadvantaged. And it's just a part of my story. It's part of my experience. Like I said, I'm not a bad person because I experience male privilege. I am a person who's a feminist. I'm a person who believes in equality of, of all genders. Not, not that, uh, that doesn't make it go away that people trust me more as a man in some context. It doesn't go away that people assume that I'm in charge more as a man. Instead, it becomes a thing that can leverage. It's like, let me make sure my sisters get some, get some shine, you know? Let me make sure that I do with my privilege what I can to leverage it. It's not something that goes away, but rather it's something that I use on behalf of my siblings around me. Sarah, I'm, I'm curious. Um, do you feel like you have any privilege as a woman of color? Because I, for me, I'm a woman of color as well, and I'm trying to think what privilege I have um, that I that empowers me. And the only thing I could think of currently is my is my intellect. But do you feel that you have a privilege? Like as Darren said, he has the male privilege. I do. Um, I think. I mean, I grew up in mostly white spaces and so can code switch really well and tell you want, what you want to hear and sound like you want me to sound and just, and not even always in a bad way. I think there are ways that that, I think that I've seen God use that. I'm able to speak to people that I otherwise wouldn't be able to speak to, but I think that's a form of privilege. I grew up mostly middle-class for most of my life. Um, I think that that's a big one. Um, I'm cisgender and so I'm not, I'm able to exist in the world in that way. Um, what else? I have a very supportive parent who loves me and a very great support system. So I think in, and when I think about, and honestly the area that I grew up in and just, I think when I think about it, I think a lot about class and the educational opportunities that I've had and the access to things that I, I have now that I would not have had if I had grown up in a different family, even carrying the same identities that I do. I just want to like, um, just to add, um, it was Audre Lorde who said that there is no hierarchy of oppression. Thank you, Andrew, for throwing that out there. And I knew that. Now I'm like, duh, but there, there you go. Um, and yeah, thank you, Sarah. I think you're 100% right. There's like so many aspects to this conversation that so often um, can get erased, like in terms of like being able-bodied, being cisgender, um, the area that you grew up in, your income level, even like something as simple as like U.S. citizenship, like being a native English speaker. Like there's like at when least you before get, like, 2020 on U.S. citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's like so many layers. There really is. Uh, thanks for thanks for bringing that up because I was I was at a loss, but being able to code switch has come in handy for me on on several occasions. 
Um, we have a very good question uh, from an anonymous attendee. I'm just going to read it as it's stated. How do y'all navigate the racial apathy of white Christians? That's the first part. The second part is, and the homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia that exists in black ch uh, Christian churches and spaces. That's a, that's a lot. So I will not start with that. I will <laughs> I will let, uh, I guess, Sarah, Darren, or Bridget, do you have uh, any opinion? Sarah is drinking her, her water in the classic, I'm just going to sip that tea and put my hair back behind my ear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is so much there. Um, so, so there's, there's a really good in, intent in this. Like, there's some stories that we typically see. Um, where I agree that there's an apathy that uh, that white Christians tend to have, um, and either an apathy or an antagonism. Um, Robert Jones, uh, who's the CEO of, of PRI, one of the nation's largest research firms, he's come to this conclusion based on two decades of data that white Christians are consistently more likely than whites who are non-religious to deny the existence of structural racism. Like that's kind of a really huge important thing. And while so many people would like bristle at that idea, it's data, like there's context where it's just like this is kind of objectively true in some ways. So that's one thing to look at. But then there's this narrative about, um, about uh, black Christians and what it means for black Christians to uh, to be non-supportive of the LGBTQ community. Um, and it's a both and. Um, I have to say, and I speak, I speak to this in Black gay male spaces, as well as I speak to it in, uh, in white, in general, Christian spaces. Part of how anti-Blackness um, works is that it tells certain stories and I'm trying to be cautious in how I, how I illustrate this, but I think that part of anti-blackness is seeing the homophobia in black churches and making that a bigger monster than the anti-gayness and the anti everything else in white churches. Um, like, for example, in the United Methodist church, I, I work in the United Methodist church now, um, there's lots of discussion about uh, same-sex marriage and, and, um, and what the church's official stance will be when it comes to that. Um, and there was a lot of politicking and vote kind of massaging between U.S. conservatives and the very, uh, who are very small in number versus the very large in number um, uh, Latin A and African churches. And so there was like, oh, you need things. Let us rich American churches send you all the things that you need so that you'll vote the way we want you to vote. And um, it's created this thing where the global United Methodist Church um, was able to come down in a more uh, um, restrictive way about LGBTQ people and clergy. Um, and there's a lot of belief that it came from 
the massaging and the, and the prompting of white conservatives in the US. And so what happens is, it's the black and the Latino folks or the Latina folks who, who carry the brunt of being homophobic while the effort <laughs> is undergirded and financed um, by white folks. And, but because of the way that we do anti-blackness, we hold on to the story of the black folks as being bad and not being the good progressive folks. And we kind of look away and we don't treat white people as a group because we almost never treat white people as a group and we don't notice it in the same way. So it's there, it's everywhere. Um, and it exists in different forms and it's informed by different things. Um, for example, white Christians uh, who are LGBTQ say, well, I just left that church and I just, I didn't, I don't, I didn't stay with those people who didn't want to welcome me. And that expectation gets put on um, uh, black indigenous and, and, uh, and Latin A people of color who are, are LGBTQ and in a church that's not supportive. But the difference is church for many PLC folks is the one place in society where they ex experience belonging and they have family and they have prestige and they have all these other things in a world that is largely against them. For many white folks, if church doesn't like you, you're, you're not being oppressed in every other part of your life. And so being able to leave a church as a white person means something very different than leaving a church as a person of color who is already a minority in a larger world that isn't structured for them. And so when it comes to navigating it, it's like I have to know all these languages. I have to understand like, yeah, as a gay man, I'm probably going to find more white churches or white cultured churches that affirm me and will welcome me and celebrate me. Um, but they also don't really don't know how to engage me in my blackness. Um, and then as a, as a black man, um, there are lots of churches that are full of gay folks and nobody's out. <laughs> <laughs> that was you know, let's, let's just call it, call a thing a thing, beloved. Um, and so it's like, there are, there are, there are tensions, but, um, they're informed, they're informed by each other. They don't exist in their own little bubble where these people are bad because of this and those folks are bad because of that. No, we just working together just to press everybody in every which way. Um, I don't know, I, I feel like I've been running my mouth a long time. <laughs> uh, Darren, I thought what you said was very, very powerful and I really just wanna sit and just listen to you talk more. <laughs> to be, to be oh, let me send you a PayPal donation. <laughs> Okay, sorry. I'm I'm a loud laugher, um, but I love um, it. okay. Um, Bridget and Sarah, do you have anything to piggyback on from what Darren has stated? I do, but it's taking us a little bit of a different direction. So, Bridget, if you have a a thought on that topic, go ahead. No, go for it. Okay. Um, I very much resonate with you. Said I think it's really. I didn't connect the the feeling of like community and belonging that I experience in church with that greater, just, wow, loved everything that you had to say there. And it made me think about some of the later questions that we have around feeling belonging in different spaces. And when you're carrying all of these intersectional identities, how do you navigate that? How do you, and I think for me, that looks a lot like being present in a lot of spaces and having the recognition that no one space is going to make 
all parts of me feel loved and safe and affirmed. I also, like I have, my dad is from Ghana, my mom is black, I grew up in mostly white, like even in spaces that should fit my identities, they don't always incorporate all parts of it. And so I think that I have to be very intentional with the media that I consume, that I, if I am participating in a lot of more like white evangelical church spaces, that I'm also supplementing that with spending more time with my black friends or listening to black thought. And just that like, it has to be a very conscious effort that is very exhausting, but also so rewarding. And I know that when I'm, I can feel the difference when I'm not engaging one part of my identity. And I don't know if that's just a I'm 22 thing, or if that is just like an overall part of the experience, but that is what that's looked like for me recently. I, I will have to agree with you uh, totally of Sarah. I, I have several spaces that I'm a part of and not all of them meet my need. I have to, I have to be a part of the, most of my, my church is a, is a reformed um, church with, mostly Caucasian, maybe 2% um, Asian, 1% um, East Indian, and then there's a few people just kind of sprinkled in there and I'm, of, of, of uh, African-American descent, and I'm, and I'm one of those. And um, I have to be, have, I'm there, and I'm not really truly, um, they, they love and, and accept me, but they don't understand my struggle or my blackness. And um, that's one of the things that I struggle with with my, with my church, which is sad, but God has called me there for a reason. Um, first of all, because it preaches the word of God. And, and second of all, to be a witness to the black struggle because I'm one of the few black people that some of the white people in my church even gets to see and communicate with. And so I, I see that as my, my mission field, actually. And um, then I have to, I just joined the, uh, this Black theology group so I can um, communicate more with my Black brothers and sisters. And then, of course, I have the, uh, the uh, side B community that I am a part of. So not every space meets every need, but I have to be present in all of them. So uh, thank you, Sarah, for uh, bringing that up. Okay, great. I'll just, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Bridget, please. I was just going to like, just like piggybacking what everyone said. I think um, what I have started challenging myself more to do um, is just showing up as my full self um, wherever I happen to be um, and embracing the fact that when I show up as my full self, I am going to get along in some ways and I'm going to challenge things in other ways. Um, and like embracing that reality um, and seeing that reality as being something that is good and can bring good things um, and not, it doesn't have to be something that I'm scared of. Um, for the longest time, I had a fear about talking um, openly about sexuality because I felt as if I was already taking up too much space talking about race. Um, and I felt like I had used up my like, you know, troublemaker tokens. Um, <laughs> and that like, I couldn't, you know, talk about sexuality because that would just be going too far. And like, you know, that would literally just like people just 
they weren't listening to me in the first place, they really won't be listening to me after that. Um, and I think it's like a matter of recognizing that like we are complicated, complex beings. We have, uh, all of us um, have multiple facets to our identity and who we are and what we bring to the table and the things that we challenge just by our mere existence. Um, and I think it's important to bring all of that to the table um, and let that speak the truth that needs to be spoken um, in the various different contexts that we find ourselves in. I love that. See, I told y'all Bridget is, is the bomb.com. Um, so I'm an age. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it right back at you, Darren. Thank you for the love. Um, that I, I just, I think I, what I really want to affirm from that is that permission giving where we do have to give ourselves permission to be our whole selves, to be our whole selves, our messy selves, our, our black selves, our male selves, our white selves, our, our non-binary selves, our, our LGBTQ selves, our cishet selves, like to be our whole selves, not in a way that says that everything I do is right, but rather say, this is, this is how I'm showing up and I'm going to, to be me in a way that, that gives permission for other people to be themselves too. Um, I think that's just so important and often overlooked in what it means to be in community, what it means to, uh, to, to, to hold space together. That's beautiful. I've actually started to um, work on that um, in my personal life of bringing my whole self, self everywhere because not everyone in my extended family knows I mean, they know me, but they don't know every aspect of me. They don't know that I'm queer. Um, that's the biggest part. Um, and uh, some of my family do and some of my family don't. And, and also my queerness impacts my husband and, uh, and his side of the family too, because they're, they know who I am, but they also don't know, they also don't know that I'm not straight. They would assume that I'm straight because I'm married to a man, but I'm nowhere near straight. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I wouldn't know how else to be, really. <laughs> uh, we have a question here from um, Becca. And she states that uh, I've seen white allies challenging white people to integrate Sunday mornings by sitting under the authority of a black pastor instead of a white lead in multicultural churches. I understand the sentiment, but struggle with that because the black church seems to me a safe place for black Christians, and I wouldn't want to just show up on a Sunday morning. Do y'all have any thoughts about that suggestion in general? If white people should consider that, how should we go about doing that without imposing? Um, I'll take a first crack at it. I don't see it as imposing um, at all. You're the you're not sitting under a white lead or a black pastor. You're sitting under the throne of God, under Jesus Christ, and there is a um, a authority that was given to that pastor, and we're all part of that flock. And uh, at my at my church, whenever. Uh, Greg or the other uh, pastors bring in a, uh, a a pastor of color. I appreciate it, and I, I love I love to see 
that uh, our ch our church is open to bring in a guest speaker to speak in at at, at our church so that our church can get another flavor um, of uh, the gospel and how it's print, presented and its and its cadence. And um, I the most segregated time of uh, of the week is Sunday, unfortunately. And since a um, since heaven is going to be a melting pot, there's going to be multiple cultures, peoples, um, races, colors. Uh, church should be that should do that as well. And I think people should should get together and gather together and worship together. I think if we were to worship together, probably a lot of what we're experiencing right now would probably go away. Um, I guess, I don't know if uh, people on the panel agree, but uh, feel free to chime in. You know, I am team both and, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the, the context from which I'm speaking. So yes, if you're in a, in a space in life where you are trying to kind of uh, radically even uproot some of the ways that you've been led and taught and experience you've had, especially if you are coming from, um, and I, I, I asked my Facebook friends about this recently, if you're, if you're white, ask yourself the question, how many times have you been in a work environment where you're the only white person? How many times have you been in a church environment where you're the only white person? And if you don't have that experience, then it's a whole lot of learning that would be really helpful to you to, to, to have that. Um, and so if you're in a place where you're like, yeah, I really need to, to learn and do something different and to, to, to not uh, do my status quo, that may be great for you. Um, but there's a, there's a nuance in this question too, where it's like, but what about the church what about you know the people who are there what am i imposing am i showing up as as hi come teach me i want to learn about racism now uh, <laughs> that is real that is a thing and it really depends and a lot of times we want a single answer that's going to be the, the the answer for all times and situations and there's there's not one in some places a black church is an escape it's a sanctuary it is a is a a protective space for black people where they can escape the larger things of life because they have to survive it every day it's not the same as uh being in an all-white environment and being resistant to to people of color coming in when you're when you're already the minority being in a protective space for your group uh can be very cathartic can be very healing because you at the end of the day have to go back into other spaces um and so a church or a leader might be in that space and it's not anti-white it's not reverse racism it's just we have a larger society to deal with and so this is where this this group is centered um and then the other thing is sometimes like uh, and this is kind of where I am at the moment because I've been, I was raised in all, in all black churches as a kid, uh, then went to a predominantly white church. Um, and then currently I lead in a church that is, that is mixed, but uh, super on it when it comes to talking about race and, 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 uh, and LGBTQ stuff, but that still has to fight the larger ways that we can default to whiteness. Um, and for me, I realized that uh, none of, none of these spaces are all that I need. Just like, just like, uh, Sarah was saying, like, I can't get it all in one quick and easy spot. But, um, if I, if I'm just transparent, um, 
I have to just continually own the fact that I, um, I can do what I do when it comes to educating about race and so forth only so much. Um, that at some point I do have to have time that's just for me, that's just worship, that's just presence. Um, and that the the music that I like and all this other stuff, all that is on a real nuanced journey because sometimes I can be in, a, in an all black space and it's just like, but the theology on some of these songs, I, I just, it's just rubbing all against the wrong things for me. But I love the sound of it and I love the expression of it. And it's so, it's so culturally like authentic to me. Um, but then if I'm always in like progressive spaces that tend to be very white, then it's going to be like, oh gosh, it's so white. <laughs> and you know, to, to put the joke out, some of my best friends are white, but it doesn't mean that, that it's all, it's all ended. So I'd say all that to say, you have to just kind of be aware of where you are. You have to read the room and figure out, is this a space that's a good fit? Are we good for each other? Rather than is this good for me or am or are you know it it it's one of those things you just have to kind of test and see and see what works in the context you're in. If you can be in a mostly white space for a season, that's great. Go for it. Do all the things. Fight the fights. Get the uh, get the anti-racism team started at the church. Do it all. But if you're not in that space, that's okay too, because you got to survive a world that is against all of us, but especially against you. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Darren. Sometimes I forget because I because I'm exhausted all the time. I forget how exhausting it is being in an all white space versus just being in an all black space, and how being in an all black space can be uh, can can be a a sanctuary. And some sometimes I forget about that because I'm not in that space often, which is which is unfor unfortunate for me. Um, I guess Bridget and Sarah, do you have anything else to um, to add to this question? I have a couple thoughts. Um, I think, kind of going off what you were saying, Meredith, it's sometimes it's not even that the people that are in the space, but like who is in leadership and who is making the decisions and like what the environment is like. Um, and I think that. I never was able to articulate, I, I still struggle to articulate the differences between what a, a black run space feels like versus a white run space. And so sometimes I think it's really important and really helpful to be able to be present in those spaces. And like now I have words for like when I go to a black church, I know that like I'm not going to be sitting here taking notes on the sermon. I'm going to listen to the story. And as he's telling me the story, like all of these deep truths are going to be hitting me. And those kinds of things that like I was not able to articulate. Um, but I think in making the decision, the posture is really important that like you are not going to this space to talk. You're not going to this space to be like, I'm on this great mission to understand the black people and save racism from happening in my spaces. But that like your heart is to learn and to listen and to um, just like allow yourself to be impacted by the people that are around you. I, I agree. You can't you can't treat it like a project. And that's, that's one of the things that I'm frustrated with, with uh, some people in the uh, Christian community, they go in different spaces and they don't go there to be a brother and a sister in Christ to, to be a part of the struggle. They go there as a project and then they take a picture and then they leave. And it's just like, I'm not a project. You can't take a selfie with me. You need to be 
if you're going to go into a, a space, especially if it's a, a black church or a place that you're not uh, familiar with, you need to go there to join the space, to be a part of it, and to, um, to be a part of the people that's there. And it's in a part of the community. You have to embrace it. And, uh, and it can't be a vacation or a project. It has to be more of a lifestyle because we're all gonna be in this together, right? Because we're all gonna be with each other in eternity. So we might as well start today. Um, Bridget, do you have anything to add or I can move to the next question, our final question. Just to say, um, I just, I love um, centering just that idea of, yeah, this is not a project that's like a common problem known as the white savior complex um, and, and it's a problem when white people go into spaces of color uh, to try to save them but it's also a similar problem when people try to go into spaces of color to you know just you know be saved <laughs> um, and it can't be either or and like um, everyone said it has to be something where you see yourself as actually joining the community. This is like something that has to be a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, this is not for you and it's not for them. This is about the kingdom of God and ultimately uniting with your siblings in Christ. Awesome. And our final question. So what my plan is to is to give you the final question. And then after you answer, if you want to tack on any final thoughts that you have about our conversation or about race or intersectionality in general, feel free to tack that on at the end. So our last question is, how do the panelists feel about the comparison between race and sexual orientation in public discourse? That's a heavy last question, I guess. Um, <laughs> Bridget, you're first. So yeah, I'll, I'll like tackle this first with my scattered thoughts and other people, please chime in. But I will definitely say that I find the comparisons to often be very frustrating um, because it's, it's typically cis white gay men that love to make those comparisons, um, but they make the comparisons in ways that make absolutely no sense. Um, and are not actually applicable. And so it becomes very frustrating because there are comparisons to be made. There are overlaps, um, but there's also very important distinctions. Uh, they're not the same thing at all, even though they share commonalities. Um, and so it becomes very frustrating because um, in LGBTQ spaces, a lot of times what happens is white people want to name all the commonalities um, that exist, but like most of the time they're, it, it feels like they're shooting in the dark. Like they don't actually, they're not actually hitting the targets that they think that they're hitting. Um, and so it, it winds up getting frustrating because, and I've had this experience ha happen to me many, many times where white gay men will try to tell me the ways in which race overlaps with sexuality. And, and it's just so far afield of where the commonalities actually are that I don't even know where to begin. 
And I'm distinctly aware that if I try to correct them, they will tell me that I am not like aware enough. <laughs> it's just, it's, it, it becomes very frustrating. So um, yes, there's commonalities um, for sure. Um, there's, dis there's comparisons to be made, but there's also very important distinctions. Um, and feel free to chime in other people. Darren, Sarah? I'm putting you on the spot. Spot is accepted. <laughs> uh, oh gosh, that was so good. Uh, <laughs> I, this, this is an audio recording, but when I tell you I am rolling over here, um, because I've had that same experience where where you where you're like, yes, I I know you mean all the good things right now, but also you're missing it by leaps and bounds and it's it's exceptional how far you've gone past the point to try to make a point <laughs> you're like the point was over there go back so yeah um yeah that i've i've had i've had similar experiences where i think there are important and valuable uh connections and learning points and similarities uh, like I said, uh, for a lot of people who are white, being LGBTQ is their first um, named, for, who are white and, and male identified, a lot of times being LGBTQ is their first point of like experiencing oppression. Um, for, for women who are white, I, typically they understand it from the place of being women in a society that is centered on men, um, but they're still working to overcome the hurdle of what does it mean to be white and uh since whiteness hides itself just like maleness hides itself uh if you are male you don't think about gender typically other than what you're looking for and who you are attracted to <laughs> um but you're not in a society that teaches you as a man you have to make sure that you're not going to cause women to stumble never have i ever <laughs> been demanded that you're not taught as a society that as a man you have to make sure that sexual assault doesn't happen to you we make rape jokes about prison but we don't actually do all the the things that demand women to defend themselves against assault um so there's so many ways that that the the different things get obscured that you have to put yourself in a place to listen. You have to put yourself in a place where you're not the not there to be an equal party in the conversation. Um, like I've been, uh, for example, I've been trying to to do more to listen to Indigenous, First Nations, and Native American folks um, because, like, as a group, they experience a way higher percentage of oppressions than what I do as a black man. Um, but because they are so erased from the conversation um, we typically don't hear about it and we don't know how to hold that tension um, in these larger discussions so like I just I try to name that I um, uh, there's there's folks in my world who are non-binary and I'm as much time and energy I've, as I've spent learning about women and their experiences I I am fledgling when it comes to naming and understanding the, the challenges of being uh, trans non-binary um, and making sure that, that, that I'm the advocate that I desire to be, not just the 
professional person who, who gets invited to sit on the stage and talk on the panels. Um, but that I'm like, hey, call me out all the time, but not, not, it's not your job. You don't owe me that, but please, if you would, <laughs> I, I want to learn. Um, and so I, it, it, for me, this is just a reminder that uh, there are connections. And as, an, as somebody with an education background, we learn from what our previous experiences are. So we, we, we get that new knowledge by connecting it to old stuff we already know. And so, yes, it's important to see the connections, um, but we can't go too far with that. We still need to be gaining new information excuse me, now I'm burping because I've been laughing so hard. Um, but we just need to gain more information um, and let our hearts feel it, you know, let it, let it, let it impact us. Not, don't let it be an, a, don't let it be an intellectual discussion or debate point, but let this really be about humans and their lives and their experiences and stories. I, I agree. I agree with you to totally, Darren. I, th I think, well, first, my first comment um, is, is that our indigenous people, our Native American people, not only has been erased from the, um, from the subject, they've just been erased. And, and that's, that's a bigger, that's a bigger issue. Um, but um, out, outside of that um, bigger issue, to piggyback on what you said, we have to take race and sexual orientation, we have to take that on an individual basis. Yes, there's going to be some commonality across swaths of people, but when you look at it in that way, you miss the individual. And we all have our own unique individual stories, and we have to be able to empathize, sit down, and truly see the person that we're speaking to. So I encourage everyone who's listening that uh, when you think about race and when you think about sexual orientation, just don't think about all of uh, the commonalities or the differences. Think about the person. Put that to the face of a person. Reach out to that person. And when they talk to you, believe them when they talk about their struggle. <laughs> Just don't say, oh, but what if you did this? Or did you, did you make them feel threatened? Like, no, I did not. I shouldn't have to defend myself. You know, just believe them and listen and be a part of the solution. And um, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Sarah, do you have anything to add? Or <laughs> There's so much that could be said. Uh, so much beautiful truth that was shared. Um, I think too, there, there's so many books and so many resources about people who carry these intersectional identities and so many of my favorite books. I love James Baldwin. Like so many, there are so many things that you can read to actually learn about people who carry these identities and the ways that they are the same and the ways that they are different. Um, and so I think just an encouragement that like, if you want to have that conversation, do the work. And like, there are so many resources that you can look to to kind of help facilitate that journey um and i think on a more personal note i have found a lot of beauty in understanding both sides of that and kind of seeing the ways that they are the same and the ways that they help me see god and the ways that like being black is a very different understanding of the way god interacts with us than being african and like the ways that as i understand both of those i am better able to see and know god and that being 
lesbian helps me to understand the ways like God interacts with us and the ways that God loves women and all of these things that like, as I personally engage the intersections in myself, I am able to see and know God and see and love the people around me better. Beautiful, Sarah, beautifully put. And um, are we ready to wrap up? Do we have any final comments from anyone before um, we sign off? Okay, then I was gonna oh, go say, ahead, Darren, please. yeah, I just, I, 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 I try to always stay mindful that these conversations can sometimes feel defeating or it can feel like, oh, there's so much to be done and, or, you know, it can feel like a, a homework assignment where you got to go read, go read uh, James Baldwin and then read Audre Lorde and then read Byard Rustin. And, you know, there's like, there's so many ways that, yes, there's things to do. But um, I just want to invite us to, to dream for a moment. And rather than spend too much time thinking about how to fix everything or next steps, to just maybe name a little bit of what, uh, what do you hope for in the world? What, what kind of world, um, what kind of peace, what kind of shalom um, do you, what's, what's your thing that you hope for? Um, I, I think back to Jesus and, I, oh crap, I can't remember what, uh, where, where it was, but the, the either King James or NIV was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, scorning his shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Um, I remember being in a very dark place in my life and seeing that part where it said for the joy that was set before him and thinking, Jesus saw it get better before he went to the cross. And what is the joy that's set before me? If I'm going to be like Jesus, and if I've got to take up my cross and die daily, thank you. Uh, somebody said Hebrews 12 and 2. If I've got to die daily, then what is the joy that's set before me that as I run this race with, with patience and endurance and so forth was the thing that I'm hoping for? So to answer my own question, I'm looking forward to the day where we don't have the hierarchies. I'm looking forward to the day where we all can, can be one fully, fully in the image of likeness of God in all of the ways that we're diverse and beautiful and wonderful. I love that the, the story of Genesis is this very small vision of, of perfection, but the story of Revelation is this very diverse and glorious, wide, colorful, multi-tongues, multiple tribes, like, it doesn't go back to the garden and all the things that were in revelation were not in the garden, but somehow that, that our God has determined that at the end, I'm going to bring it all in. So it's not, we don't, we don't have to avoid being the diverse mess of people that we are. God's actually working all that together for a beautiful end story. So I'm looking for the day when we're just all, all of who we are, and none of it is left out. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And Bridget, do you have anything to, to wrap up and add? I was just going to say amen. That's amen. it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, then what I've been reading through um, Begin Again by uh, Princeton professor, uh, Dr. Um, Eddie Glob. 
and it's about the civil rights movement and James Baldwin. So let's first talk about James Baldwin. And um, in, in his book, he states that uh, our task is not to save, um, I'll use the, his term white people, uh, mind, to save white people's minds or souls. They'll have to do that for themselves or to convince white people to give up their views that one group of people is better than another. Our task is to build a world where such a view has no place or quarter to breed. And so that's the type of world that we have to, to build, is a world that will present the lie for what it is and give it no quarter to breed. And that is that one race is uh, more superior than the other. And to add to uh, piggyback on what Darren says, it's gonna be a beautiful cornucopia of ethnicity, cultures, um, food, art, music, in heaven, we're all rejoicing together. And it's, it's going to be beautiful. What we meant for evil, God meant for good, that, that, that uh, singular perfection in the beginning is going to be a multitude of perfection in the end multiplied with many faces, many races, many colors. And um, I thank you all for joining Bridget, Darren, Sarah. You're all beautiful. It's nice seeing your beautiful faces, hearing your thoughts. And um, thank you for joining uh, me for this time. And Josh, I'll turn it over to you. Well, again, I cannot say it enough. Thank you to you four for being part of this panel. And a special thanks to Meredith for being the kind of moderator of the conversation. I also want to thank everyone who's been part of the last four episodes that we've had talking about race and sexuality. Again, everyone, this is just the start of the conversation. But I hope that these last four episodes can at least be a starting point as we all learn together. So again, thank you all for listening. Thank you for everyone who participated on the panels, in the conversations. And thank you to everyone who attended our first ever live episode. This will not be the last. So thanks again, everyone, and talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.